Before we begin looking at God's word, let's just take a few moments just to be silent before the Lord. And within your own heart, just ask God that he would speak to you tonight from his word in some special way. And after you've prayed that for yourself, pray it for the people on your right and left side and the ones in front of you and behind you. Let's just take a few moments of silent prayer. Lord, we do come to you out of a need for your spirit to help us to understand your word. And I pray that you would speak to us, that each of us would go away tonight having heard from you, having you address a particular area of our life where your word applies to it, and helping us to conform ourselves to who you are, that you would mold and shape us into what you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Gospel of Matthew started out early on, first of all, establishing through all the fulfilled prophecies the fact that Jesus Christ was a Messiah. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus establishes, well, the rules of the road for the kingdom. Not only is he the king, but now he presents for them the standards, the morals, the, well, the the type of people, the kind of heart that he wants to have, that he demands to have from the people in his kingdom. And so describing it on a personal level. And when he finished teaching, they were amazed because he taught as one who had authority. But then he proceeded to amaze them even more because the next couple of chapters, as we saw last week, he did all kinds of miracles to not only show that, hey, I can talk a good game, but He was saying, I can back it up. I fulfill prophecy. I have the kind of heart, the kind of standards that the kingdom of God is to have. And now by confirming who I am, by performing these miracles, casting out demons, raising from the dead, healing those who were sick. He establishes in very concrete, in a a way that you you can't argue with that he is in fact who he says he is, that he is the one that they were waiting for, the Messiah. Now, as we get to chapter 10, we find that Jesus, it it records his calling of the 12 disciples and his sending them out, him commissioning them to get involved in ministry. And so, um, and again, Matthew's book isn't chronological. They're kind of bunched up. So for instance, in chapters eight and nine, it records basically 12 miracles. And now he goes right into these 12 disciples. And it says, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. Now, the name of the 12 apostles are these, and he goes ahead and lists the 12 disciples. Now, we sometimes call them disciples, we sometimes call them apostles, but there's an interesting shift of gears here that I think is worth noting. He he says in verse 1, when he had called the 12 disciples, a disciple is basically a student. It's someone who is following the leader, someone who is submitting themselves to a teacher. But then he says he gave them this power 
the same kind of power to heal and to do wondrous miracles that he himself had demonstrated in the previous two chapters and tells them to go out and then says in verse 2, now the names of the 12 apostles are these. He calls them disciples and he calls them apostles. And that's the kind of shifting. The word apostle just means one who is sent forth. And so as they followed Jesus, as they saw what he did, he said, I want you to do these kinds of things too. I am calling you to repeat these works. I will give you the power. I'll give you the authority. And now because I'm sending you out, I'm calling you apostles. Now, in, uh, in the same way for us Today, we begin to follow Jesus, we become his disciples. But then as he begins to work on our hearts, as he empowers us in order to use those giftings that he has placed within us, as he places an anointing on us, then we go from being mere students to where we're those who have a mission, we're those who are sent out. And in this case, their mission was primarily what he was still doing, that is to go to the Jews and demonstrate this kind of authority that would show that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And so it says in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, now he's going to, this is kind of their little last minute instructions before they would go out. You're going to see in this passage, there are some things that people today will use as by application for their principles concerning ministry. And though there are some valuable principles here, it's important for us to recognize that there are parts of this passage that certainly wouldn't apply to us. And so I'm a little skeptical when you start to apply certain parts of these things and not others, as we will see. We need to contextually understand that he was talking specifically to his disciples, specifically in that area. And he said, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, there are some people today who are involved in Jewish evangelism who would still say, it's to the Jew first. Until every Jew is reached, you don't have any business sharing the gospel with Gentiles. And of course, that's completely misunderstanding what was going on here. It's not that in this age, in the church age, that we don't want to reach out to Jews, we do. And it's a special, special blessing when they come to know the Lord. But at the same time, it's after this that Jesus ends up saying, opening the offer and saying, whosoever will. John chapter 1 said, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. And so we'll see that transition where he begins by offering himself as the Messiah to the Jews, and that's what he's doing here. And then later, as he's rejected by the Jews, making that offer to which we Gentiles have responded to. But he says, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, the king is here. How can it be said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, when you're in the presence of the king, the kingdom is here. And that's what he's saying. Go tell them. I'm here. The Messiah has come. The king is here. It's time. And he said, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now, if you're going to lay claim to apostolic authority, as some Christian groups do today, and they cite this scripture as saying, see, we're out there healing, we're out there, you know, doing what he's called us to do, freely receive, freely give. I don't see many of them raising the dead. 
I don't see many of them having this kind of authority. It was a specific application of the power of God for that particular time. Now, does that mean that today God doesn't heal or that he can't heal? Absolutely not. Of course not. But in that time, it fulfilled a special role because he was demonstrating who he was. And that's why we don't see the kinds of mass healings that happened in those days today. Now, some people would say we do, but when you start to look into some of the claims, healings today are pretty exceptional. They even were toward the end of the first century. They were even exceptional as you read through Paul's epistles and you go from people passing you know, under the shadow of Peter and being healed, people touching a cloth that Paul had prayed over and being healed, to where Paul is telling Timothy, go take a little wine if you have a stomach ache, or where Paul is himself coming to the Lord and asking for a thorn in the flesh to be removed and it didn't happen. The transition, because, well, as always is the case, when you have signs and wonders that are there for a specific purpose, if they proceed too long, people just begin to hang out for the signs and wonders. They begin to hang out just to see the show. And that's not what Jesus is about, as we will see here. So we shouldn't feel like, wow, you know, in the first century church, look at the disciples were going out and all these people were being raised from the dead. What's wrong with the church today? Well, nothing any more than was wrong with them. These disciples were not super spiritual people. It's just that God has specific purposes behind what he does. And yet he still, I've seen him heal supernaturally many, many times, but I've seen him more times than that when we prayed for physical healing and his answer was a spiritual healing by someone's heart being touched or his answer was to take someone home to be with the Lord and that's an ultimate healing and so again a specific time and and if you're claiming that you have this mandate then show me the people that you've raised from the dead if you're such a faith healer and then I'll start to stand up and take notice. So he says, don't provide either gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. Don't take money, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. So he tells them, don't take anything with you. Don't pack. Don't even take an extra set of sandals. Don't even take money with you. You are to go out simply with nothing. And again, now there are people today who would say, that's the only way to do it. That's the way to, to follow God is to go out like that. No one should have to save up some money in order to support a ministry. No one should have more than one set of clothes. There are people who really believe this. But again, this was a specific command to the disciples at that particular time. Later on, Jesus told them, you take a couple of bags of money with you. He said, and it'd be a good idea to pick up a sword or two because you're heading into some tough territory. So in this particular case, as he sent them out to announce the kingdom, though, that was what he had, had told them to do. Let the people support you, who you're ministering to, and don't save up and, and don't spend your own money and don't have any possessions. But that wasn't a general rule he was giving for ministry. He says, now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who is in it that's worthy and stay there till you leave. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So he says, you go into a town to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Ask around and find out who's the most spiritual person and, and then go to their house. 
and they'll put you up. If truly, if they are the kind of person, if they're worthy, then they would gladly make a place for you. They will open the door to you. And, and if they do that, great. Then you can stay there for a while and perform this ministry and then bless them. If things don't go too well, brush the dust off your feet, walk away and just say, oh, well, I tried and move on. Now, this isn't the attitude that we are to have when we share the gospel. We're not to call down fire, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah on somebody because we knock on their door during a football game and they don't want us to share the gospel. Again, this was a specific time going to a region for this presentation of the news that Jesus was the Messiah. And so some, some special instructions from Jesus on it. We can certainly learn from it. Jesus said earlier, don't cast your pearls before swine. And, and, and so certainly to just continue to beat your head against a wall, there, it might be better to move on to someone else and share with them. Don't just keep bothering the same person if they're just not listening, they're just not paying attention. Unless God tells you to do that, and then you should do it anyway. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You're going out like sheep in the middle of wolves. You're not having anything to protect yourself. You're, not, you're, you're in a position where you're kind of at the mercy of the people you're going to. And so he said, it's really important that you be smart at the same time that you be innocent. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. It's a tough balance to strike. And I believe this is something that should characterize who we are. We shouldn't be so wise to the things of the world that we become cynical. That every time someone tells us something, we think, yeah, right. I'm gonna, I'll have to check that out. I don't believe that. There are some people who pride themselves in not believing or trusting anyone. At the same time, there are some people, innocent as doves, they'll believe anything. We shouldn't go to either extreme. There needs to be a balance of, of wisdom and at the same time of, of trust. It's something that, that Jesus embodied and, and his disciples were too, and we should also. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now, there are people who have taken this passage, and it's a beautiful promise that when you're there on the bubble, when you're in a situation that was unanticipated, that the Spirit of God will tell you what to say, that He will lead you and show you. You don't have to worry about, what if this happens, what do I say? However, and there are some people who use this scripture and say, you shouldn't prepare when you're going to, if you're teaching a Sunday school class or if you're a pastor, it's really carnal for you to actually plan what you're going to say. No, instead, you should just get up there and let the Spirit move. I've been in some churches where they do that. I've listened to some pastors who do that. It's not a pretty sight. Quite often, you're not hearing the Spirit of God at all. You listen for a while and just go, are you just making this up? And there are pastors who, when they get up and they can't think of anything to say, so they do another hour of worship. You know, that, and we'll call out some healings or something like that. Or, you know, the old trick in the old days in camp, sometimes if you forgot to plan a session, just have everyone break up into groups and discuss something. And the pastors would go back to their room and go to bed. But I'm not saying I did that, but I'm not saying I didn't either. But uh, 
we certainly should be prepared. This is not saying don't study. The Bible tells us so many places, study to show yourselves approved unto God. Obviously, Jesus spent time learning the word of God, growing in favor with God and men, it says in Luke 2. And so it's not, this isn't an instruction that tells him, don't even worry about preparation. He spent most of his life training the disciples, teaching them, pouring into their lives his instructions. He certainly wasn't saying, ah, oh, you don't need all that. You don't need to be educated. You don't need to read. You don't need to study. What he was saying is, you do everything you can do, but there are going to be times when you're just hit by surprise. There are going to be times when something happens and you couldn't have planned it. In this case, somebody grabs you and throws you into prison. And here you are, you're in court facing a legal system that you don't understand. And he said, don't even worry about that stuff. Don't be afraid. Don't be chicken. Because when you get into a situation where you've done all that you can do to prepare, and it's just not working out and you don't know what to say, I'll tell you. I'll let you know what you should say. And, you know, there are times, I'm sure you've had these occasions too in your life, there have been times when I'll be witnessing to someone and they're, say, a member of a cult or something like that. And I've heard about the cult. It's not one of the biggies. And, and I'm just sitting there talking to them just thinking, why didn't I bone up on this? I've got a great book on it. I read it 10 years ago, but, you know, I haven't read it for a while. I'm getting rusty and I feel like I don't want to just wing it. And there are those times when I know I should have worked harder, I should have studied harder. At the same time, there have been so many situations where I'm talking to someone and they come up with something I've never heard before. They come up with an argument or a position or an idea and I'm just like, this is totally new to me. And I have two choices. I can either wing it, I can sit there and dodge it around, or I can, you know, go to the old fallback, you know, just, I don't want to talk about that, let's just talk about Jesus. Or you can go, God, will you help me here? Will you speak to me? Will you speak through me here? And, and he will. And you've seen it. If you've spent much time sharing the Lord with people, you know there are times when you come up with something that you go, wow, where did that come from? Hopefully it's not something you made up. I've seen people do that too. They'll just come up with some statistics out of the air because, you know, the, I knew a guy who would just make up Greek words. Well, the Greek word there is actually agaplopalibzo, and, and, and they go, oh, okay. Uh, it's not what he's talking about. God's not going to have you lie. But at the same time, God will be with you. You don't ever have to be afraid of being at a loss for words, except... There are times when you're at a loss for words, and that's exactly what you should be doing. There are times when you don't know what to say, and that's okay, and that's all right. There have been times when I, somebody was in a situation that was so difficult, I just thought, God, please give me something to say. They expect me to say something. I'm a pastor. I, tell me what to say, and nothing came. And there have been times when that happened, when all I could do is cry or something, and people say, you know, I was sick of hearing everybody's advice. But when you were just there and you didn't say anything, you just held my hand, or when you were there and you just started to cry, that ministered to me. And so sometimes there isn't anything you need to say. And often when you're just blanking out, consider that as an option. <laughs> but at the same time, if something needs to be said, he'll tell you. He'll show you. It'll happen. Don't worry. Don't freak out about getting into a situation where you don't know what you're doing. As long as you've studied all that you need to. If you're just lazy, 
he'll not bail you out. Sometimes he will, other times he'll let you make a fool of yourself. He goes on to say, brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and cause them to be put to death and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you'll not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So he's saying it's going to be tough. He says the one who endures to the end is the one who is saved. In other words, hang in there. The only way you're going to lose is if you quit. The only way you're going to lose is if you give up. He'll be with you. I, it'll work out. I'm going to work and, and I'm convinced that that's true in life. If you don't quit, you'll be okay. If you quit, you're in trouble. And again, he says, man, there's going to be turmoil. You won't know who to trust. You won't know what to do. It's going to be tough, but endure. Endure like a good soldier. Hang in there. And then he says, you're not going to, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Difficult passage to interpret. The simplest the simplest explanation is that you're going to be going through a hard time, but before you guys have even covered all of Israel with the gospel of the kingdom, then I'm going to be manifested. I'm going to be revealed, if you will. There are other interpretations of it as well, and if we were doing an in-depth study, I'd get into some of them, but that to me is, is the most you know, clear thing. Another, another option that's not too bad is just to say somehow they aren't reached. Israel isn't reached until he does come back because they're out there presenting the gospel of the kingdom and he's basically rejected by Israel. The day will come when Israel accepts him and that's the day of the second coming. That's not too bad of an option for this passage either. So he says, uh, a disciple is not above his teacher and a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple or a student that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. That is a profound truth. If you're really a disciple, you can tell. A student becomes like their teacher. One who is following becomes an imitator of the one they're following, and you'll see the changes. You'll see it happen. And so that's an encouraging thing, but it's also in this context, it has a downside because he says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more, which was just a false god, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, don't fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is saying, look, it's going to be tough. Of course, if you're becoming like me, then you're going to go through some of what I went through. They hate me. They'll hate you sometimes. So don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Don't feel like, wow, the Christian life isn't what I thought it was going to be. They're really taking shots at me. It's difficult. Well, of course, you think it was easy for him. But he says, despite that, that I've called you to victory and it's going to happen. That which I tell you in secret, preach it openly. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of people who the worst thing they can do is kill you and send you to heaven. What are you worried about what people are thinking about you when you've got a, the God who created you, who's calling you and telling you to do certain things? Oh, it's, 
It's a horrible feeling when you know God wants you to do something and you're just chicken out. You know he's telling you to say something, but you just back off. Why? Because, well, you're afraid it's going to offend someone. You're afraid somebody will get hurt or maybe the IRS will come after you. What? You know, you don't know something's going to happen. He said, don't fear people that the worst thing they can do to you is just kill your body. That's nothing. He said, if you want to fear somebody, fear the one who can send your body and soul to hell. And it's really true. If you really fear God, you won't have to fear anyone else. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. A healthy fear of God. Uh, does that mean shuddering and, and go, thinking he's going to destroy me? No, it's knowing how much he loves you. So much so that your heart has been touched by him and you're afraid of hurting him, offending him. You're afraid of of violating that which he has called you to do. You're afraid of living your life and not doing everything that he wants you to do. That's what we should be afraid of. And if we're afraid of that, then we won't be afraid of anything else. The fact that it, 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 now some people will use this scripture um, where it says, uh, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That presents problems for some people because it sounds like that your body and your soul will be vaporized, that, that hell won't be eternal. But he's just using the metaphor here. There, and honestly, there, if you, there are some you know, theologians who build a case for saying that actually the body is in hell for a period of time and then it's finally destroyed or burnt up. Of course, there are many other people I think the better scholars who, who believe that you're going to, we're all going to live eternally either in hell in a place of torment or in heaven with the Lord. Our bodies that we receive, our souls that are the real us, I believe they're going to go on. But to be fair, there are some scriptures like this one that use a term that makes you think, wait a minute, is it going to be destroyed? But that's really not what he's trying to teach here. And there are so many other passages that talk about being there forever and ever where the worm dieth not, where it can't be quenched. That, you know, that personally, I, I think that, I mean, I'd love to believe that people who reject Jesus Christ aren't in hell forever. If, if I thought that it even had a decent case, I would go, yeah, that's cool. I, I don't like to think of people suffering forever. But unfortunately, the Bible seems to indicate time and time again that is exactly the case. So, um, but this is a verse that, that people use to say otherwise, and so I don't wanna, I don't wanna just dodge it. I, I think that the whole idea of being destroyed in hell, being punished in hell, is something that it, if all you do is get destroyed, well, why is that any kind of a threat? Really, if hell is just you go there, you die, you're gone, this passage wouldn't completely make sense. I think he's just talking about the damage that's inflicted by the hellish environment. So uh, now he says, uh, are not two sparrows, verse 29, sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The birds, these little sparrows, they don't, plan, they don't organize, they don't have a structure to, they just live their lives. And he says, look how cheap they are. You can buy them really, I mean, today you'd be hard pressed to buy a sparrow. You could just go catch one. But he's saying as cheap as they are, when they fall, your father is there. Now, 
this uh, in the New King James, it says, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Well, that whole thing of your father's will, will is not in the original. Literally what it says is, it, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. Now that may mean you can imply, and, and they should have put will in italics, but that may imply that somehow that's God's will, but it doesn't necessarily teach that. The point is when sparrows fall, God is there. He sees, he knows. They still fall. See, the fact that, you know, and I think that we make too much of this passage by emphasizing the Father's will and saying every bird that falls, it's because God wants them to. And therefore, to have this position that I believe is unbiblical, that everything that happens in the world is exactly the way God wants it to happen. When the bomb goes off in Israel, that's what God wanted. When a child is born with a, you know, disease or, or you know, some severe physical problem, Yep, that's what God wanted. Now, somehow it all fits into God's will, and it's not easy to understand why, but I certainly don't want to blame him for things that exist because of the results of our choices, because of the results of the fall. And so I, I think that, that that translation, I'd prefer to just leave it the way it actually says it, literally, and that is, your father's there. Because otherwise, I, I can look, and in my worst moments, I can just go, man, I fell, I stumbled, I'm hurt. And my father, well, he's there. He doesn't say that he'll catch you even. He will, he'll pick you up, he'll take care of you. But the whole idea is he is there. And we have that assuring comfort of his presence and that should be enough for us not to fear. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Something that to me would have been really impressive when I was younger. Seems like much less of a miracle today. Do not fear, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Again, in the context of people who are afraid to speak up the message that God has given them to speak. This isn't really talking about altar calls. It's okay, it can apply loosely, but the idea really isn't that, you know, you need to stand up and walk forward and show, you know, in order or else God's gonna deny you. That's not it. What he's saying is don't be afraid of God because if you will confess him, if you're willing to speak up about him, then he'll defend you. But again, no guarantee that if you keep your mouth shut, and you're afraid and you're so worried about everything else that you, you know, I've been a Christian for years, but I would never tell anybody. And I don't want to go to church because they might see me and it might offend someone. And then this passage maybe should concern you. Confess him. Acknowledge that he's your God. How in the world could we ever be afraid and not speak up for him? Well, Peter knows because when he was there after Jesus was going to the cross and he denied him three times to the little girl and then felt so horrible afterwards, our flesh is weak. We are all capable of denying him at one time or another. But what he's saying is, come on, I'm, I'm supporting you. I'm gonna speak up for you. You're banking on that. How about telling people who I am? It's an important calling on your life. And then he says, don't think I came to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. 
I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. So he says, and of course he's the prince of peace. He also said in another place, I have come that you might have peace, but he came to bring a personal peace in the lives of those who respond to him. He didn't come to bring, you know, peace on earth. He will someday. He will. He's going to bring peace on earth. But at this point, he said, by speaking out and calling out those who would be my disciples, I'm going to divide a lot of people. And there are times when we have to decide. He goes on to say, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who doesn't take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So what he's saying is, look, you need to either follow me or don't. It's as simple as that. There's no halfway. There's no flaky little kind of commitment where, yeah, I'm kind of following you, kind of checking out the world, kind of hanging in there. You're fooling yourself if you think that that's a walk with God. If you think that you're a Christian and you haven't made that commitment, you haven't said, I will take up my cross and follow you. I am willing to suffer if that's what you want. I am willing to take all of the fear that I have of everyone else and instead I'm going to subject myself to you and only fear you. If you don't do that, he says, you're not worthy of me. Now, how could we ever be said to be worthy of him? Well, only if we go to him and receive his righteousness within our lives. But he seems to be indicating here that people who don't really want the whole deal, well, maybe they're not getting anything. Maybe they're the people he was talking about earlier who said, hey, come on, man, we knew you. We went to church. We even did miracles in your name. And he said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That scares me. Now, it may not be, you know, maybe everybody who's ever walked an aisle, everyone who's ever prayed a prayer, maybe they're all saved. I hope that's the case. But as Jesus is explaining the kingdom, he seems to be drawing a line in the sand and indicating that it's more than just praying a little prayer. It involves a personal commitment. It involves a willingness to suffer. It involves a courageous decision to say, I'm going after you. And he says, if you don't do that, if you don't take up your cross, if you're not willing to, to deny everything else, if you're not willing to put it behind you, you're not worthy. You may not make it. And then, of course, he goes on to say, if you find your life, you'll lose it. And if you lose your life, for my sake, you'll find it. If, if you just decide to try to save your own life, if you decide to focus for yourself on the temporal if you decide that, you know, the big thing to me is to have the best life I can have here and now. What I really want to do is accumulate enough creature comforts that this life will be great. Well, there's a problem because there's an eternal life that's coming down the road. And if you're trying to find life here, you may lose life in eternity. But at the same time, if you decide to live for eternity, if you place your soul in his hands, your life in his hands, seeking for the things of God, looking for eternity, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's amazing how nice it makes life here. It's amazing how blessed you can be even here. But if you get it backwards and you try to have a great life here, well, you're going to find, for one thing, you're not even going to find that life here. But down the road, a serious problem, he's indicating. And then he says, he who receives you receives me. I love that. When you're following God, when you're serving him, when you're reaching out for him, he says, 
I am so identified with you that people who receive you, it's their receiving me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. A good reason to open your heart, to open your life, to open your pocketbook to those who are serving God in other areas of the world, in other ways. To, and the fact is, is what he's saying here to them applies today. That when you, for instance, say, oh, there's somebody, you know, we have one of our missionaries here from, you know, somewhere else. And, and you go, hey, come and stay with us. Now, I know that that's a sacrifice to have someone stay in your house that doesn't live there. Certain things you can't say and do. And you, it, it, it is a sacrifice. But what if it was Jesus? And he says, if you receive them, you're receiving me. I'll bless you and, and pay you off in the same way that they're going to be supported for what they are doing for me. And it's a great lesson for us to remember that when we reach out to those who are serving God, we're actually reaching out to God himself. And the amazing thing is, as we support those who are ministering for him, reward them for what they're doing, but God will reward those who receive them, those who offer them a cup of cold water, those who reach out to them. And so it's important for us to realize that, yes, it's absolutely important that we look for people who are needy and hurting and dying and lost and to get the gospel out there. But at the same time, he wraps it up by saying, you also need to take care of the ones who are the prophets, the ones who are doing that specific ministry, maybe you haven't had the opportunity to do. And the cool thing is, imagine if you spend a couple weeks taking somebody into your home who's then going back out there to serve God, and you find out that God rewards you in the same way that he rewards them because they couldn't do it without you. It changes the whole perspective on how we reach out to those who are serving God. And we realize, man, I, I can't believe I have this opportunity. It's one of the most economical, one of the most efficient ways that you can have a profound impact by receiving those who are serving God, by reaching out to them, by expressing to them that comfort, by offering them a glass of water. God will pay you back big time. And it's a blessing. And it's, it's amazing to think that that has that same kind of significance. But Jesus says it, and I won't preach on it anymore. Chapter 11, John the Baptist, he's in prison. He's hearing stuff about Jesus. He, remember when Jesus first came to be baptized, he saw Jesus, his cousin. He knew who he was, and he's, he's going, look at him. He's the one. He's the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoe. He must increase. I must decrease. But now he's confused because Jesus is the king, and he figures, hey, I'm going to get out of jail any day now when Jesus takes over. But here he is in jail. Things are looking worse. He ends up being beheaded. Then things were looking great because he was in the presence of God. But at this point, he's just going, what's happening? I don't understand what's going on with the kingdom. And so he, it says that 
after Jesus sent his disciples off, he went off and John heard from in prison about what Jesus was doing and he sent two of his disciples and they said, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus said, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. These were things that were prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would do. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So he says, don't get tripped up by the fact that it's not looking the way that you think it is. John, you were right, I am the Messiah. But it's different than you'd expect. And then as the disciples departed, Jesus started to talk about John the Baptist. And he said, what'd you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And what'd you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what'd you go out to see? A prophet? Man, I'm telling you, more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus is saying, he sends the message off to John the Baptist, and then he says, guys, think about it. This has been kind of confusing to John. I can see where it's confusing to you. What do you expect? When you saw John the Baptist, you thought, man, if that guy would polish up his approach a little bit, Maybe he could get somewhere. Maybe he wouldn't have ended up in jail. And he's going, what'd you expect? Some kind of reed that just, is just going to blow in the wind? Somebody who's wearing really soft, sissy kind of clothes? Is that what you wanted? Is that what you're looking for? Is that what you're looking for from me right now? Listen, I'm not going to be that way. He said, if you're expecting me to be a politician, John wasn't a politician and neither am I. So I'm going to tell it like it is. And if it means that I end up being killed for it. I'm not going to be blown in the wind. I will not be seeker friendly. I'm not going to work my way slyly in to sort of take over where people hardly know what hit them. He said, no, I'm going to tell the truth. That's what John the Baptist did. You shouldn't have expected. You shouldn't think that somehow I'm going to come in like some fancy highfalutin rich guy and just take over the world. He goes, no, it isn't like that at all. It isn't. He said, it's not pretty. It's kind of ugly the way the people that God calls. It's kind of surprising. It's baffling. I remember one time after I spoke at Calvary Costa Mesa like 20 years ago, this guy came up to me. I'll never forget it. He had a funny voice. Like, he talked like a computer simulator. And he came up to me and he said, so you're a pastor? And I said, yeah, I am. I'm a pastor. He goes, Lord works in mysterious ways and walked off. And I thought, what does that mean? But it's true. It really is true that God chooses to work in ways that may look offensive, that may seem like, boy, I wish he'd clean up his act a little bit. I'm kind of embarrassed to bring my friends before Jesus and John the Baptist. These guys look like nuts. And he goes, no, what did you expect? It's the truth. That's what matters. And so he says, oh, and then, and then as he says, John the Baptist is the greatest. He's greater than any of the Old Testament prophets. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he saw Jesus and he recognized him as the Messiah. The first one to do so. Amazing. But he said, 
you guys are going to understand it even more than he does. And everyone that comes after him is going to know more than he does. So he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, but you guys are New Testament prophets. Greater things are going to happen as a result of that. And then he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. It's ugly. It's not pretty. There's a lot of people who are suffering and, and the violent take it by force. It seems like it's going to be a battle. It seems like, you know, this is just the way it is. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now that's this passage brings up a whole other incident where Jesus says, if you had listened, John the Baptist would have been Elijah. Quoting from back in Malachi, where it's, and Jesus said that in Malachi, well, why don't you turn over there quickly? It's the last book in the Old Testament, so you can probably get there pretty quick, right before Matthew, unless you have the apocryphal books in your Bible, take you a little longer. Malachi chapter 3. Verse 1, this prophecy, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He says, I'm going to send a messenger. Now, Jesus said about John, that's who Malachi was talking about. But skip across the page in chapter 4 of Malachi, and, and look what he says about Elijah. Well, in verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, back to Matthew chapter 11, looking at this passage on John the Baptist, it says, he says that, um, if you're willing to receive him, he is Elijah. And before that, as he talks about John the Baptist, uh, he says that, you know, behold, I send my messenger before your face, identifying him as the one. But at the same time, and again, over in one of the other gospels, I think it's Luke, he actually quotes that passage from Malachi 4 in, re in relationship to John the Baptist. And it identifies it as Elijah. So it's kind of confusing. Was John the Baptist Elijah? Of course not. I mean, he, he was not reincarnated. How do we know that? Well, I mean, he showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration. But also, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We don't believe in reincarnation. But Jesus seems to almost say he could have turned into Elijah if people had believed. Somehow, it seems that John was a partial fulfillment of the prophesy in Malachi, and if the people had accepted him, if they had listened, that's all it would have taken. That's what would have happened. God would have said, okay, great, that's enough. And so, and, and by the way, over in Luke chapter 1, it kind of ties this whole thing up by saying that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he wasn't Elijah, but he had the same spirit. He had the same function. He had a similar role that Elijah will have as prophesied in Malachi chapter 4, where then as we come to Revelation and we find out there are two witnesses during the tribulation, Moses and Elijah, I believe, who are going to testify they're going to prophesy and then get killed during the tribulation. Before that, Elijah shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses as well. So here's the best sense I can make out of it. Had the children of Israel accepted Jesus as their Messiah, he still would have had to die. But 
There wouldn't have been a need for the 70th week of Daniel. There wouldn't have been a need for that sealed 144,000. They would have accepted him as the Messiah, and that would have been all she wrote. The kingdom could have been ushered in. But as a result of their rejection, now we find that there still is yet to be fulfillment of that prophecy, and it would literally be Elijah. It would have been okay if it was someone who was in the spirit and power of Elijah, as it was prophesied of him in Luke chapter 1. But because of that rejection, then that prophecy hasn't been completely fulfilled. And so though he was a, an Elijah-type character, a type of Elijah, yet still I believe literally the real Elijah is going to come back. And I think Revelation teaches that clearly. So he says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. If that doesn't make sense to you, skip over it. But it's interesting to me. And you might read Luke chapter 1 around verse 17 or something to see that cross-reference. But to what shall I liken this generation, he says. They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. He's saying, you're like little kids. And apparently the kids in the streets in those days were playing games. And they would play, let's play wedding. And so they'd be playing the music, but nobody's really into that. Well, let's play funeral. And, and then as the, as the mourning happens, their heart wasn't in it. And he says, the same way that kids role play, that they play a part, but their heart isn't really in it. It's not real. It's fake. He says, that's kind of the way your hearts are. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners but wisdom is justified by your children. So he says, you guys aren't going to be satisfied no matter what happens. John the Baptist came taking a Nazarite vow. Not, it's not that he didn't eat or drink. He wouldn't have lived more than you know, a few weeks if that was the case. But there were certain foods that he wouldn't eat. There were certain beverages that he wouldn't drink. And he says, and, and you guys rejected him. So then I come and I'm hanging out with the people and I'm not a Nazarite. I'm, I'm you know, living life before you, nothing to hide, and then you accuse me of being excessive. You think he's too oddball, and you think I'm too much like the people. What do you want? Now, it is an interesting passage, just as a side note. It seems to be, certainly, John the Baptist wouldn't have drank wine because he took a Nazarite vow. This passage seems to indicate that Jesus must have. They wouldn't have accused him of being a wine-bibber if he was a teetotaler completely. Um, but it's a whole different study, and we don't have time to go into maybe what the wine was like in those days, and, and in fact, was it fermented or not, and that's for another study. But I just wanted to point that out to you. It's interesting that at least he drank grape juice and and John the Baptist wouldn't have. It's possible that he drank uh, wine that would have been somewhat fermented. We don't know, but you wouldn't think they would be accusing him of, of excess if he wasn't even indulging. And so uh, there are all kinds of really great reasons not to drink, by the way. And especially in our day and age, in our society, in our world, where people are driving around at 80 miles an hour. And rather than in those days, if someone overdid it with alcohol, they'd fall in a ditch and family would come and drag them out later. It's a little different now. So uh, please, I'm not defending drinking alcohol. And I don't at all. I wouldn't touch the stuff. But at the same time, I just want to be true to what the word says. And that is an interesting passage that you might hear about. And if you want to argue, go ahead. And so... Then he began to rebuke 
the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Jesus was spending most of his ministry offering the kingdom and the disciples heading around in the surrounding area in Capernaum, which is up there at the top of, of the Sea of Galilee. And the cities right around there, in this case, he addresses Chorazin and Bethsaida. They were two little neighboring cities. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were further away. Those were two cities that were off on the, on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea there. Same locale, but further west. And he says, man, you guys are seeing all these miracles. And you're not repenting? If, I, if it had happened over there, these, you know, cruddy cities would have probably repented. He says, but I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Here he's saying, basically, there is certainly more punishment, and this is taught in many places in Scripture, for people who know more, to whom much has been given, much will be required. And so, for a person who's never had an opportunity to hear the gospel, God's going to deal with them in a much different way than he deals with somebody who sits there and listens to it week in and week out. If you've already decided that you don't want the Lord, if you've already made up your mind, I'm just not buying it, I don't want it, uh, I'll suggest maybe you should quit coming to church. I mean, I hate to say that, but the truth is you're going to be held accountable on the basis of how much you've heard. So at least if you come, just go ahead and curl up and sleep through it. You might have some sort of a defense. But here he's saying, you guys, I was there. I lived with you. You saw me. You witnessed it. There's no excuse. You guys are some of the awful cities. If they had the witness that you have, they would have repented. And it's going to be more tolerable for them. It's certainly not that hell, there are, diff, there are degrees of punishment in hell. There are a lot of references to that. But hell at its worst is still going to be hell. It's still going to be separation from God. So it's not like, you know, you have the people off in the jungles who never heard. And so when they die, they go to maybe Palm Springs in August. And, you know, for people... Uh, Hell is still hell. There's nothing. It's, it's presented as an awful place to anyone. And primarily, the reason it's so awful is that you're away from God. You're isolated eternally from the God who loves you. And so then he goes on to say, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes, talking about his disciples. He's going, man, these religious people, they knew they should have known what's going on. They know the scriptures and they can't see it. They don't get it. And he's going, I got a bunch of fishermen and they get it. They're responding. He goes, God, that's great. All things have been delivered to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. He goes, God, the only way that this works. The only way these people are responding to you is because you're revealing yourself to them. And that's great. And then he offers this passage that we looked at extensively on Sunday morning. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
they were opting for the yoke, what, what Paul calls the yoke of bondage. Peter calls it that too, the law. They were trying to live by the law and it was a horrible burden and they couldn't do it. And Jesus is going, get rid of that and just come to me. I can give you rest. I can give you refreshment. I can deal with all of the pain and the hurt that's in your life and you'll be okay. Just come to me. Just submit to me. And that promise remains for us as well. It's important for us to realize that. Five minutes, let's dig into chapter 12. Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. And as far as that goes, haven't you noticed the priests have to work on the Sabbath? I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's being accused of allowing his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath, which would have been forbidden by the Sabbath laws and traditions. But Jesus says, look, there's a precedent. David, when he was with his men, he, God had anointed him as king, but Saul was trying to kill him. And at one point, his men were starving, and they went to, at that time, the tabernacle. It was before the, pre, the, it was before the temple had been built. And the priest gave them holy bread, showbread, that no one was supposed to eat except the priest. But hey, they were dying for crying out loud. Give them the bread, let them eat. And he said, don't you realize that the law isn't there to put people under bondage? He said, look at the priests, they have to work on the Sabbath. But he said, you don't even realize that the one that's in your presence, I myself, he's going, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. In the passage over in Mark, when the same event happened, Jesus said, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. In other words, use common sense. He's going, look, I am in charge. There are a lot of places, it's funny, a lot of businesses People have a list of rules and they don't know how to get off of that list of rules. There's nothing more frustrating sometimes than to go into like a fast food establishment and say, I'd like a burger, but instead of mayonnaise, could you put some Thousand Island dressing on it? And they go, "Uh, no, I can't do that. Well, why? What would happen? Well, it's just health code. It's Come on, it's not going to hurt you. If I can eat the thousand on the, on the salad, I should be able to eat it on my burger and take responsibility. If I die because somehow Thousand Island dressing being mixed with meat is going to be bad for me, well, I'll sign a release, but can't you just put some Thousand Island dressing? No, I, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. And you think, well, that's kind of weird, but if the manager is there, hey, no problem. If the owner is there, Oh, I'm sorry, you know, we, could, we give rules, but sometimes the people don't understand that there are ways to apply the rules in a sensible way. And that's really what Jesus was saying here. He's going, you guys never got past the rules and you didn't understand those rules, those Sabbath regulations, it was for people's good. It wasn't to be a burden on you, it was to bless you, it was to, to give you rest. And so in this, and at this point, the religious people are getting pretty fed up with him. He goes on here, 
to be criticized after he left that place, they followed him, went into their synagogue, interesting choice of words, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now they're trying to set him up. Now they're saying, okay, I'll buy the wheat thing because of David. But they go, I still don't get it. Okay, so there must be a loophole about eating food that's okay. But how about healing Jesus? Here's a lame guy brought in this guy, goes, what do you think? See, they knew about his compassion. They realized the kind of power that he had. If they had thought that he was a phony, well, guy, they, they wouldn't have even made this offer, but they realized he could do it. They knew his heart that he would want to, and they tried to trap him. And he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? He's going, you guys have common sense. I don't care what the rules are. If your sheep, if the only one you have falls into a ditch, Sabbath or not, you're going to rescue them, aren't you? And they go, well, yeah. He said, of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. They were shown to be what they were, guys who were religious, who didn't understand the greater principles, who knew the letter of the law, but didn't understand or submit to the spirit of the law. And Jesus showed them up for the phonies that they were. And he would many other times, but this was a turning point in his ministry as now they were out to get him. Oh, for a while they were following along. Remember, they were hanging around when John the Baptist was preaching. They were following Jesus and like, hey, teacher, they thought, hey, maybe we can get some prestige. The guy's got this booming thing going. He's doing all these miracles and great. He's probably going to, we can latch on to him and this will be cool. But Jesus wasn't afraid of them. He didn't think, boy, if I can impress the Pharisees, what a great ministry I can have. If I kiss up to the right people, man, it's going to no telling how big this thing could get. Now he just spoke the truth. And the truth was that they didn't understand the law. The truth was that they were applying the law in a way that denied the value of human beings. We need to be careful when we beat people over the head with rules. When we apply the law in a way that's designed to hurt people. Let's be careful that we're realizing that the law is there for people's good. It's not there to hurt people. It's not there to beat people down. I believe that today it's very easy for us to become Pharisees, to take the Bible and to apply it in people's lives in a way that is destructive and damaging and dangerous, and through doing that, miss the whole point of what it's all about, miss who Jesus is and what he wants to do, and I don't want to be a Pharisee. Well, our time is up, so we'll pick up next Wednesday where we left off. And, and in, this, in this passage, we're going to get down towards the end of chapter 12 to the unpardonable sin. And uh, so hopefully you don't commit it this week because... <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. And I thank you that you were real. Because if... If you had been the kind of guy who only wanted the elite, if you had come strutting in in your fancy clothes and your exclusioning of all who didn't measure up, well, we'd be lost. But God, you came as one of us, simply and profoundly revealing to us the heart of your Father. 
allowing us to understand things that theologians will never understand, things that religious people could never comprehend. In our simplicity, we come to you and you speak to us. And it's great. God, even now, you've spoken to some of the people who are here tonight, and I pray that you would lock it in, that you would reinforce it to them, that you would remind them of what you're telling them. And for all of us, God, that you would make us into what you want us to be, that you would help us to hear your voice, to see your face, to submit to you, to start looking more and more like you as a good student will always look like their master. And then, Lord, to make that transition that we will go from being disciples to being apostles, to hearing your voice to being sent. God, we thank you for allowing us to participate in all that you do. The fact that you want to hang out with us, the fact that you want to use us, it's unbelievable. But we believe it because you say it. And we thank you and we worship you and we praise you for all that you do for us and all that you're going to do in us and through us and for us. Thanks, God. In Jesus' name, amen.